Well, welcome to week two of the Branch Online Sermons. Uh, last week, we thought about trusting God through this crisis, uh, that no matter what happens, even if this world is turned completely upside down, if we put our trust in Jesus, God is our mighty fortress and strength. But this week, I want to spend some time thinking through how we should think about what's going on and how we should respond to what's going on. Now, at the beginning of the crisis, is really the time to set up a good framework for how we think about this situation. You see, I think the danger is that if we don't stop and do that now, if we don't stop now and think about what's going on, we'll just move on with our lives without thinking deeply about what's taking place. In fact, in some ways, I think we're already beginning to do that. We're already beginning to adjust to the new normal and just to get used to it. But the danger is that we'll just adjust to that new normal without reflecting deeply on the spiritual significance of these events. We'll just focus on coping rather than thinking about what these events tell us about God and what these events tell us about ourselves as people made by God. So today I want us to focus on thinking uh, that through. And the way that we'll do that is by looking at what another man, Daniel, did when he and his nation were faced with a time of catastrophe. We're looking today at Daniel chapter 9. And if you haven't read that, you might like to pause the video now and, and read it. So how do we think about this crisis? How do we respond to this crisis? Well, Daniel 9 begins by telling us what's going on in Daniel's life. We're told in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. The year is 539 BC, and Daniel is in exile in Babylon with many of his fellow Jews. Their home city, Jerusalem, lies in ruins, and the reason is that God has brought judgment on his people because of their sin. God had given them a good land to live in. He would promised to look after them, but the people just kept going astray. They kept uh, living the very ways that God had told them not to live. Again and again, God called them back graciously. Again and again, God warned them. Again and again, he forgave them and brought them back to himself, but they just kept ignoring God. They just kept rejecting God. And so finally, God acted to deal with them by bringing disaster on them. Daniel acknowledges that in verse 11. He says, Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. And yet even though this disaster has come upon the people, they still want to ignore God. Listen to what Daniel says in verse 13. He says, All this disaster has come upon us, yet we haven't sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. So Daniel knows that this present situation that he and, his, and the people of Israel are in is because of God's rebuke for the way that they're living. But Daniel also knows that God has promised a rescue. God had promised that the desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem would only last 70 years. 
I say uh, only 70 years. Uh, 70 years is still a very long time. Most of us are panicking about the idea of this uh, present crisis lasting for four weeks or, or six months, let alone 70 years. But Daniel realizes that this 70 years is nearly up. And so what does he do? Well, he prays. He says in verse 3, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel pours himself out in earnest prayer to God. Notice that Daniel knows exactly what God is doing. He knows what God's plan is. God is going to rescue a people for himself. But Daniel still gives himself to fasting and praying. Now, you and I need to be careful about how we move from Daniel's situation to our situation. Daniel had a direct word from God uh, that his situation was a judgment from God. Daniel had a direct word from God through Jeremiah that the punishment would last 70 years. We don't have any of that. We don't have a direct word from God saying, I brought this on you because of this or that sin or, or whatever. Uh, we don't have a direct word from God telling us how long it will last, whether it's 70 years or four weeks or, or, or six months. But even though we need to be careful about equating our situation with Daniel's situation, nevertheless, at a more general level, our situation is the same. Israel in Daniel's time is kind of a picture of the, the reality of the whole world. God had made for Israel a good land. He'd put them in it. He'd promised to look after them in it. He'd commanded them to live according to his plan and purpose for the world in that land rather than their own. But they still went astray and they were exiled from the, the, the place where God had put them, the, the place that God had provided for them. And just as Israel was in exile because of their sin, so also humanity, all of humanity is in exile from God because of our sin. God made a good world. God made us to be in relationship with him. God commanded us to live according to his plan and purpose for the world rather than our own plan and purpose. But our rejection of God, what the Bible calls sin, our rejection of God has separated us from God and left us all under his judgment. Not just some of us, but all of us. When Adam and Eve first sinned, we were cut off from God. And every day still, our sin separates us, cuts us off from God. Everything that we do makes that situation worse rather than better. We think that maybe we can climb up to God, but we can't. It just, whatever we do, even the best things that we do make the situation worse. And just as for Israel too, uh, there was an exile and a return uh, after 70 years, so God has also announced that one day there will be an end to the exile for us as well. One day Jesus will return to gather his people to God. So Daniel's situation in, in chapter 9 of Daniel is a kind of a mini picture of what's true of the whole world. So that helps us at one level, but, but more than that too... When we understand at a broader level that plagues in the Bible are almost 
always sent from God as a judgment uh, to wake people up to where they are in relationship to him, it, it, it has to pause to make us think about what's going on. Our, our general situation is, a, is the same as Daniel's. And so also the, the pattern of God's judgment through plagues and, and other things like that in the Bible ought to make us pause and to think very long and hard about what's going on. You see, I think whatever else we might say about this situation, it is at the very least a wake-up call. It's at the very least a wake-up call reminding us that the world is in rebellion against God. Just as the exile was a wake-up call to the people in Daniel's day, this is a wake-up call to us. And so Daniel's response to what was going on in his time helps us to know how we ought to respond. How should we respond? We should respond in the way that Daniel did, with, with fasting and prayer. Daniel pleaded with God. Daniel's prayer wasn't five minutes squeezed into his daily devotions. This is hands and knees stuff. Daniel's pouring out his heart to God. What's the number one thing that you and I should be doing at the moment? I think it's praying. We should be on our knees. Theoretically, we should have more time to pray than we've ever had because everything's been cancelled. We can't go out for dinner. We can't go to the gym. We can't really go to the shops. We can't really meet with friends even. Uh, we can, of course, still fill our times with thing, our time with things. We can watch Netflix. Uh, we, can, we can watch the news. We can fill our time in worrying about what's going to happen. But what an opportunity it is for us to pray, to get down on our knees and to, and to call out to the God of heaven and earth, the God who loves us and who made us. What an opportunity to lock ourselves away and to pray for an hour and to pray for the world. At the end of last year, Pastor Steve said to me that he thought that as Christians, we were neglecting prayer. And I think he's right. It's for that reason that one of the big focuses that we had already for this year was growing in prayer. We'd already planned a sermon series on prayer for that purpose. And it looks like that series will be brought forward to begin after Easter. Because this is the time to seize the opportunity to become people who are utterly and completely dependent on God in earnest prayer. If we can't learn to pray earnestly now, when will we ever? Because now more than ever, we need to pray. We need to cast ourselves before God. You might never have prayed like that before. You might never have prayed with the intensity and the urgency of Daniel. But now is the time to begin. You may never have prayed for more than a few minutes at a time. But now is the time to begin. You may have never locked yourself away in your room, put, put every distraction away, locked your phone away in the cupboard, got down on your knees and prayed. Now is the time to begin. 
But please notice that Daniel didn't just pray. Daniel also fasted. Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes. He puts on the mourning clothes, the grieving clothes of his culture. He humbles himself and he fasts. He doesn't eat. Fasting in the Bible is often an act of remorse and sorrow. Jesus says in the New Testament that nobody fasts at a wedding. What he means is you don't fast at a a wedding because it's a celebration. You only fast when there's sorrow and anguish. You fast because you're convinced that praying to God is even more important than food. You, you, You put aside everything to pray. I suspect that fasting is not very common for most of us. But that probably says more about our culture, our culture of indulgence, than it does about anything else. We're more ready to spoil ourselves than afflict ourselves. We're more ready to treat ourselves than to grieve and to pray. But that hasn't always been the case in the history of the church. Listen to what the reformer, uh, John Calvin, said about fasting. He said, if if either pestilence... Uh, so, so plague if, or epidemic, if either pestilence or famine or war begins to rage, or if any disaster seems to threaten any district and any people, then also it is the duty of pastors to urge the church to fasting in order that by supplication or by prayer, in order that by prayer the Lord's wrath may be averted. It's interesting that when the coronavirus broke out in China, one of the first responses of some of the Wuhan pastors was to call for three days of fasting and prayer. Well, in the same way too, we ought to devote ourselves not just to prayer, but even to fasting. This is a time of national and international sorrow. This is a time of unprecedented disruption and distress. And it will probably be like this for for weeks and months. And the the fallout of this could very well last years, if not decades. We ought to be deeply grieved by what's going on in our world. So much so that we afflict ourselves, express our sorrow and cry out to God. We ought to be so committed to calling out to God, to praying to God, to seeking his favour and his grace. We ought to be so committed to that, that we would even give up food, the very thing that sustains our physical life. We would give that up because we realise that the thing that sustains life more broadly is God himself. We need God today. We need to seek him in prayer. Now, just... Uh, To be practical, if you've never fasted before, then probably don't begin by skipping all your meals for the next three days, but begin maybe by skipping one meal. Uh, You might have breakfast and and then not eat anything until dinner at night. But the point is not just to not eat. The point is to pray, to focus on God to call out to God, this is the time to learn what it means to pray earnestly. So what does Daniel do? He fasts and prays. Well, what does he pray about? 
First, Daniel acknowledges sin, but he doesn't just acknowledge his own sin. He acknowledges our sin. Look at verse 4. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Daniel goes on. We're covered in shame. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered in shame. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Daniel doesn't say, well, look, this isn't really about me. This is all about all those dodgy people over there. Daniel says, we, us, this is our problem. Daniel is one of the most faithful people in the Bible, and yet he doesn't shy away from identifying with the sinfulness of God's people. And notice, too, that he's not focused, uh, he's not only not focused on himself, but identifying with the people around him, he's also not focused on the world, but on the church. He's focused on the people of God. And in the situation that we're in, there's a place for us to look at ourselves first of all as well. What might God be saying to us as Christians? What sins do we need to confess? What things do we need to address? Surely, uh, as with our society, the key things that we need to confess are our worldliness and our idols. Someone I met with the other day pointed out, as we were praying together, that God had taken away all our idols. He's taken away our health. We don't know whether we're going to get sick or not. We, we don't know whether we'll get badly sick and hospitalised or even die. God's taken away our financial security. It's estimated that over one million people may lose their jobs in this crisis. The Australian economy and the world economy may collapse. God's taken away our comfort. We can't leave the house. We can't go out for dinner. We can't have barbecues this week. He's taken away our relationships. We can't really meet with family and friends. He's taken away our sport, the sports that we watch on TV and the sports that we play. All the things that we love and trust in and look for hope in and look for meaning in, all those things God has taken away. That ought to make us stop and think very deeply about what God might be trying to teach us. As I said before, the danger is, if we're not careful, that we'll just survive this crisis without thinking about it. We'll just survive this crisis without being humbled by it. But we ought to be humbled by it. We ought to be on our knees like Daniel Confessing the sins of our own hearts and lives, confessing the sins of our families, and confessing the sins of our church and the sins of Australian Christianity at large. What does Daniel do? He acknowledges the sins of God's people and he identifies himself with them. But in the scheme of the Bible, in the overall scheme of the Bible, Daniel's prayer is not just about the people of God. As I said before, what's true of Israel 
in, in Daniel is also true of the world at large. All humanity is exiled from God, and all humanity stands in need of God's mercy. And so Daniel's prayer acknowledging the sin of Israel within the big storyline of the Bible, that prayer also becomes a model for us of a big prayer to God, acknowledging the profound rebellion of humanity, not just our own individual sin, not just the sins of God's people, but the sin of the whole world. This crisis ought to deeply grieve us, but not just because of the economic and social chaos that it's bringing with it. We ought to be deeply grieved because it reminds us of the separation between God and humanity. It's a, it's, it's a great trumpet blast from God to remind us that everything is not okay with the world. God is in heaven and we're separated from him by our sin. This crisis reminds us of the complete indifference of so much of our world to the God who made us and, and who loves us. Over the last six months or so, uh, that has been weighing more and more on my heart. Even before this crisis began, I'd been reflecting a lot uh, on the situation in our world I'd been thinking about the way that we're destroy, destroying our environment, uh, destroying it with our waste, like our, like our plastic, uh, thinking about the way our industries and our way of life is, is affecting the climate, thinking about the way our world is becoming a more divisive place, uh, left and right, uh, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, thinking about the way hate is being propelled more and more by social media and by the internet. That, that, that there are people who, who troll online for the joy of it, for making other people's lives misery. Uh, thinking about the way that laws are being enacted that overturn God's basic plan and purpose for the world. The way that half of the world lives in privilege while the other half lives in poverty. The way that governments around the world steal from their people and cause injustice and oppression. We ought to have a deep sense of grief and a deep burden over the sinfulness of the world. We ought to be deeply humbled by it. Not as something simply that others are responsible for, but something that we collectively are responsible for. This is our fault, all of us. Yes, there's individual responsibility. Yes, we will all stand before Jesus on the last day to give an account. Yes, salvation is individual too. The only way any of us can stand before Jesus on the last day is not because of anything that we've done, not because of our own goodness, but because of our personal trust in him. The only way we can stand before Jesus is by saying, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved, and I put my trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus in my place. Yes, there's individual responsibility. Yes, salvation comes at an individual level with individual trust in Jesus. But that said, there is still a collective sense of shame for what we've done against God. We ought to pray and say to God, have mercy on us as human beings for for what we've done to each other, to you, to the world. 
Listen again to what the reformer John Calvin says about fasting and prayer. He says, For sometimes it will happen that God will strike a nation with war or pestilence or some calamity. Under this common scourge, the whole people ought to accuse themselves and confess their guilt. What's he saying? He's saying when epidemics come, when, when disaster comes, when war comes, it's not just our place to say, it's those people out there. But it's our place to say, Lord, have mercy on us. We're all in this. All humanity has done this. We all need your mercy. We ought to confess not just their sins, but our sins. This is what we've done. So Daniel fasts and prays. He prays by acknowledging sin. And then finally, he prays by seeking God's forgiveness. Look at verse 16. Daniel prays, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Then verse 19, he says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. You might wonder how we can pray for the forgiveness of other people. Well, in some ways, what Daniel is doing is praying in line with what God had told King Solomon centuries earlier in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. God had said there, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God said that if when disaster comes, the people humble themselves, if they pray, if they leave behind their sin, if they turn from going their own way and turn back to God, If they do that, then God will hear their prayers and forgive their sin. In that light, in the light of what God had said in 2 Chronicles 7, in that light, Daniel's prayer for forgiveness implies repentance. It implies a turning back. It implies God drawing back people to himself, drawing them to repent and to seek his grace and mercy, ultimately in Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be praying for. We shouldn't just stop with acknowledging the sin of the world. We should be praying, moreover, that people would find forgiveness and hope in Jesus. That's the only hope for our world. The world is in a mess. That should grieve us. But the only hope is that people find mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we need to cry out on our knees to God, Lord, have mercy. It's so easy at this time for our main prayers to be that people wouldn't lose their jobs, that people wouldn't get sick, that people wouldn't die. And it's not wrong to pray those things. But if we only pray those things, it's a bit like praying that God would fix a car so it could keep hurtling towards the edge of a cliff. (laughs) But we don't want to put people's lives back together only for them to be cast away from God for eternity. 
We don't want people's lives to be put back together so that they can go on ignoring God and rejecting God. What we want is for people to turn back to God, to the God who made them, the God who loves them, the God who cares for them, the God who has prepared this world for them. We want people to turn back to God and to acknowledge, Lord, I've sinned against you. Lord, I've lived to myself. Lord, I've denied you. We want people to turn back to God and to bow the knee to Jesus and to find life and hope in him. And we ought to cry out to God for that day and night, that people would know him, that people would love him. We ought to pray that his name would be honoured and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Daniel's prayer and, and fasting isn't first and foremost for jobs, but for forgiveness. And that should be our prayer too. Why would God answer that prayer? Why would God be gracious like that? Well, Daniel tells us what our the ground of our hope is in verse 18. He says, Lord, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Why would God answer Daniel's prayer? Why would God answer our prayer? Well, it's not because of us. It's not because we're more righteous than anyone else. It's not because we deserve it or anyone else in the world deserves it. We deserve nothing but, but what we have and worse. Why would God answer our prayer? Daniel says, because of God's great mercy. Because of God's great love. Why would God answer our prayer? Because of his great mercy, which he has exercised in the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, who he sent to die on a cross so that we might be reconciled to him and escape his judgment and wrath. Like Daniel, when Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't look down and say, you. On the cross, Jesus spread his arms out wide and said, Us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of the gospel. That though he was utterly perfect, the Son of God became one of us. He lived as we lived. He identified with us. He took on our sin, though he was innocent. And he became our mediator. And he said to the Father, forgive us. Forgive the people who are with me, who trust in me. Jesus spread out his arms wide on the cross so that whoever puts their trust in him is rescued from the coming wrath of God. That's what we ought to pray for. 
We ought to pray for people to know and love Jesus and find hope and mercy in him. How do we respond to this crisis? Well, I think this crisis is a wake-up call for us from God. It's a wake-up call for us to fast and pray that people would come to know the true and living God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.